The Old Testament reading and the sermon text for today is Genesis chapter 3, verses 9 through 13. And the New Testament reading for today is 2 Peter 3, verses 1 through 9. Genesis 3, starting in verse 9, let's give our attention now to the reading of God's most holy word. But the Lord God called to the man, that is to Adam, and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Let us go now to the New Testament reading, which is 2 Peter chapter 3. We will consider verses 1 through 9. There the Apostle Peter writes to Christians, saying, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord our Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of His coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation." For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I will begin by asking the question today, is there any passage in all of Scripture more troubling than the one that we have previously considered Uh, That is to say, the one that describes to us the original sin of Adam with these three simple words, and he ate. Is there any scripture text in in all of the Bible more troubling than that one? And some who know the scriptures well might reply back by saying, well, there are plenty of other passages that are as troubling as that one. Uh, Think, for example, those passages which describe to us the crucifixion of the Christ. Are those passages not more troubling, they may say? And I would admit that on the surface, it is more troubling, more disturbing to think of the way that the Christ was mistreated by sinful man than to think of Adam taking a bite out of a piece of fruit from a tree, right? I mean, put those two scenes in your mind side by side, the the brutal and bloody crucifixion of Christ on the right and Adam and Eve eating a piece of fruit in paradise on the left. And as I said, on the surface... It is more disturbing to think of the way that the Christ was mistreated by sinful man than to think of Adam taking a bite out of a piece of fruit from a tree. But I would reply that all of the sins committed throughout the history of the world, 
including that, that most terrible sin of nailing Christ to the cross, have proceeded from the original sin of Adam. And so as I do not wish to minimize the sins committed by men and women after the fall, I, I am pointing out that these sins have been committed by men and women who are fallen. In a sense, they are expected, therefore. But when Adam sinned, he did so as an upright creature. When Adam ate of the forbidden fruit, he was not fallen. Instead, he fell when he ate of it. Again, this does not minimize our guilt or our culpability, for when we sin, we do so willingly and from the heart. But the point that I am making is that there is something particularly troublesome about Adam's rebellion. He was upright, and yet he sinned. And I also might point out that Adam knew what it was to commune with God and to enjoy His presence. He, he had experienced that in the garden temple of God. A fallen man does not experience this by birth. We are by nature children of wrath and alienated from God. Only through new birth is communion with God regained. But Adam knew what it was to walk with God. God was Adam's God, and Adam was God's son. And this Adam threw away when he ate from the forbidden tree. And, and this is a most troubling thought, it, at least it should be to us. Uh, Brothers and sisters, my objective in the introduction to this sermon is simply to awaken you to the hideousness of Adam's original sin and also to ours. I'm, I'm afraid that we trivialize sin, both Adam's original sin and ours today. Uh, we live in a world that is fallen and filled with sin, and I think it is very easy for us to grow accustomed to it. Sin is everywhere, and we might begin to think that it is just normal. But the Scriptures reveal that sin is not normal. It is, in fact, a terrible distortion. It is an act of rebellion. And we also tend to compare ourselves to others and to think that we are relatively good. We categorize our sins, don't we? A few we consider to be heinous, but many others we are content to live with. We're comfortable with them, in a way, and... Now, I do agree that some sins are more heinous than others. The scriptures also make this clear. But the question I am asking is, shouldn't all sin, Adam's original sin and our sins today, shouldn't they trouble us deeply? Shouldn't all of our rebellion against God and our Redeemer strike us as a most terrible and unacceptable thing? All sin, being any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God, according to our catechism, is heinous. All transgression against the law of God is heinous. And so, I wonder, were you struck by the hideousness of Adam's transgression when you read those words, and he ate, in Genesis 3.6? Did those words make your heart sick? Were you deeply troubled by the thought that the creature would dare to rebel against God, the Creator, in this way? I'm afraid that many fail to think deeply enough about Adam's eating of the forbidden fruit so as to see it as a heinous act. On the surface, Adam's sin seems to be, dare I say it, relatively innocent, doesn't it? In fact, we might even say that Adam's sin, the eating of the forbidden fruit, was a G-rated sin when compared to other sins committed throughout the history of the world. You just have to think of it this way. Notice that we're able to depict Adam's sin with accuracy in children's story Bibles 
without concern of their being overwhelmed by the scene. Have you ever thought of that? We can actually put it in there as it was. Adam and Eve there taking the fruit from the tree and taking a bite out of it. And, and, and we can depict it and we, we know that our children are not going to be overwhelmed by uh, that scene. For what did Adam and Eve do? They simply took fruit from a tree and they ate it. Such a simple and common act. But if we were to reflect more carefully on this story, we would come to see that the simplicity of the act makes Adam's transgression more heinous and not less. We must remember that when Adam ate the fruit, he ate forbidden fruit. And we should remember who it was that forbid him from eating it. It was God, the creator of all things, seen and unseen, who forbid him from eating it. It was God Almighty, the one who is described to us in the first chapter of Genesis, the one who spoke everything into existence, who in the beginning made the heavens and the earth. It was that God who said, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. More than this, it was the Lord God, the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, who forbid him from eating it. It was the Lord God who also formed Adam from the dust, who breathed into him the breath of life, who planted a garden upon the earth which he had made suitable for his habitation, who provided a companion for him, who said, do not eat of this tree. How could the creature, Adam, rebel against his creator in this way? When Adam ate of the forbidden tree, he rebelled against his maker. When Adam ate, he committed an act of treason against the king of all creation. When Adam ate, he turned against his benefactor who had provided him with every good and pleasant thing and went after another who promised him more. It's a, it's a hideous thing that we observe here in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam took of the fruit and ate. Such a simple act, yes. G-rated on the surface, but when we probe more deeply, we should be troubled. It should make our hearts sick to think that the creature would rebel against the Creator in this way. It was a heinous sin. And the simplicity and innocence of the action, the eating of a piece of fruit, does not take away from the heinousness, but only adds to it. What was Adam told not to do? Adam, do not eat of that tree over there. Don't eat of it. The commandment was so simple. The law was so direct. And I don't think that there was anything in particular uh, unique about the forbidden tree. I don't doubt that it was a beautiful tree, but I suspect that all the trees of the garden of God were beautiful. And I do not doubt that the tree looked tasty to Adam and Eve, but again, I'm sure that all of the fruit in the garden paradise of God looked tasty. And so what I am saying is that it's not as if God placed Adam in a barren desert with only one fruit tree in it and said, do not eat of this tree. That was not the situation at all. Instead, the garden was filled with trees and with vegetation, and all of it was available to the man, with only one tree being set apart as forbidden. The point is that the forbidden thing was not a better thing, in fact. It was a common thing. So that when Adam rebelled, he did so for no good reason at all. It was purely an act of rebellion against his maker. It's not as if he was in a desert place starving. And he was compelled, therefore, to, to eat of that forbidden tree. It's not as if God had withheld anything at all from him. But he had provided every good thing for his creature. 
when Adam ate, it was an act of pure rebellion against his maker. I cannot uh, remember who said it, but someone has actually theorized that the forbidden fruit was not an apple or a pomegranate or some other naturally pleasant thing, but that perhaps the forbidden fruit was one of those thorny and stinky fruits. Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't know the name of it. I don't have it written down before me. Maybe it was one of those, Durant, Durant, Durant. Uh, maybe it was one of those fruits. Uh, and I think this is an interesting theory. There's no way for us to know what the fruit was. The scriptures do not tell us. Uh, I think a lot of people assume it was an apple, but the scriptures do not say that. Uh, but this, this idea here, uh, it, it, I doubt that it's true, but it illustrates something. The, the idea being communicated here is that Adam and Eve... Uh, would have had to convince themselves that this thing was good for them to eat, and they would have had to power through uh, repulsive things, thorns and stank, in order to to partake of it. In other words, they were being driven not not by something that was truly good for them, Uh, not by something that was truly beautiful and and, and pleasant, but they were being driven to do this forbidden thing by, by a heart that was in rebellion against their Maker. They were being driven uh, by pride. They were being driven by covetousness to, to do this um, unthinkable thing. It is no wonder that when Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees. Uh, this is what traitors and rebels do when the king draws near. They hide lest they be discovered by the king and quickly judged. Uh, The question that is before us today as we continue on in this narrative is, what will God do with these two traitors? What will He do in response to their heinous sin? Will He ignore it? Will He brush it to the side? Well, this He cannot do if He is just. Will He judge them swiftly and harshly? And we would have to admit that he would do no wrong to take this course of action. They are indeed traitors and rebels deserving of judgment. Or will he show mercy and grace to the man and woman who have rebelled? In verse 9 we begin to find the answer to this question. Uh, There we read, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Uh, Notice, that the response of God towards His rebel creatures is surprisingly tender. It is surprisingly tender. First, notice that God is here called the Lord God. And you would do well to remember that the name the Lord God communicates that God is near to His creatures. He is the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. He is the God who creates, yes, but He is also the God who relates. And I think it is very significant that God is still called by that name, though man has now fallen into sin. He is still the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And what did the Lord God do as He approached the traitors? Well, we are told that He called to the man. Now, it may be that He was calling out to them so that He might immediately judge them. I suppose that is certainly still a possibility at this point in the narrative. But it is worth noting that God did not come roaring into the garden in wrath. Do you notice this? He did not come roaring into the garden in wrath. Instead, He gently called to the man. And what did God say? He said, Adam, where are you? Uh, Certainly, 
God knew where Adam and Eve were. You do understand this, don't you? It's not as if God could not find them. It's not as if he did not know. But he calls to the man saying, Adam, where are you? Uh, So as to provide an opportunity for the man to come out of his silly hiding place and to acknowledge his his sin. Uh, That is why God called to the man. It is not that he did not know where he was, but he is saying, Adam, I know where you are, of course I do. Come out. Come out from your place of hiding and acknowledge your sin. Come and stand before me and give an answer for what it is that you have done. It is really quite a remarkable response that we see from God. He would have done no wrong to enter the garden in pure wrath and to immediately go about the task of judgment. He would have done no wrong to have said, Adam, you traitor, come forth out of your pathetic hiding place so that I might slay thee. But instead, he called to the man tenderly, saying, Adam, where are you? God, in the very first words that he spoke to man after the fall, summoned him to repentance by confronting his sin. When Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But then God uttered a clear and distinguishable word. God put forth the direct and probing question to Adam. Adam, where are you? They they heard the sound of him. It was not a clear word. It was an indistinguishable word. And they ran and they hid from him. But as God enters and approaches, he begins to speak clearly to Adam. He says, where are you? In other words, Adam, in days past, you and Eve would run to me as I approached. But now you are nowhere to be found. Adam, where are you? Come forth and explain to me the reason for your absence. Adam, where are you? God said. Uh, Friends, the word that God spoke to Adam after his fall into sin is the same word that he speaks to sinners to this present day. You, like Adam, your father, have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. You, like Adam, your father, have felt the shame of your sin. And you, like Adam, your father, have hid yourself from the presence of God. You have heard His voice and have sensed His presence in this world. This is true of all men, of all sinful creatures. They they look at the world and what does it declare except the glory of God? Uh, They can, in a sense, hear His voice. It is not a clear voice. It is not a distinguishable voice, but His voice is present in all creation. And what do sinful men and women do? When they hear that voice of God from observing the world around them or even from uh, their conscience within, they do what Adam and Eve did. They run from the presence of God and they frantically try to cover the shame of their guilt. And how do men and women who are running from their maker go about covering the shame of their guilt? Well, some play with religion to ease their guilty conscience. Some do good works, thinking that this will cover their sin. Some pretend that they are in fact moral and upright when they compare themselves to others who are perhaps more sinful than they. And many distract themselves with worldly pleasures and entertainment so that they do not have to think about God, their guilt before Him, and the day of judgment which is certainly coming. 
I'm afraid that many in our culture take this route. They distract themselves. They entertain themselves. They, they partake of the pleasures of this world so as to not have to think about the fact that God exists and that He will one day judge the unrighteous. They are like Adam and Eve, hiding from the presence of the Lord in the garden, their nakedness being covered with leaves. But those leaves, brothers and sisters, friends, will not survive the fire of God's wrath. And neither will the flimsy coverings that you have created for yourselves. But God, in His mercy and grace, does call some to repentance. And when God calls a sinner to repentance, He first confronts him with his sin. Adam, where are you? When God calls a sinner to Himself, He does not speak with an unclear or indistinguishable voice. Men and women may run from God's unclear and indistinguishable voice, just as Adam and Eve ran from the sound of the Lord God approaching in the garden. But, and this is the thing that sinners do continuously. They, they hear God's voice in creation and they run from it. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But when God calls a sinner to repentance, truly and effectively, He speaks with clarity. Adam, where are you? When God calls a sinner to repentance, He communicates clear the law and the gospel to that sinner. God first applies His law. We have a wonderful summary of God's law in the Ten Commandments. It's a bit too lengthy to even cite here for for our purposes today. But there's even a more concise summary of God's moral law. Christ Himself uttered this summary of it. The Old Testament contains it as well. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, Christ said. Here is the summary of God's moral law. God, when He calls a sinner to repentance, He he applies the law, and then He asks, Man, where are you? Woman, where are you? In comparison to this law that I have, have given. And even if we were to consider only this brief summary of the law, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, how must we reply to that, that probing question? Man, woman, where are you? We would have to say, God, I am a wretched sinner, a rebel, a traitor, a transgressor of your holy commandment. Have mercy on me. And, and then after applying the law, the gospel will be declared. Jesus the Christ has paid it all. He kept the law on your behalf. He has atoned for all, all your sins. Repent and believe upon Him. Be clothed, not with those flimsy leaves that you have made for yourself, but be clothed with Christ. Be clothed with His righteousness. This is the clear word that God speaks to those He is calling to repentance. He applies the law and the gospel. Law and gospel. God approached Adam and said, Where are you? Not because he did not know, but because his will was to draw even Adam to repentance. Adam's response was not good at first. I want you to notice that. He did what many do initially when being called to repentance. He answered God, but he continued to conceal his sin. Listen to the words of Adam in response to that probing question from God. Adam, where are you? He came forth, evidently, and he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. This is all true, isn't it, what Adam spoke? It is. It is all true. Indeed, 
This happened. Adam heard the sound of the Lord God in the garden. He was afraid, and he hid, having realized that he was naked. He felt ashamed. All of this is true. But notice carefully that Adam did not get to the heart of the issue, did he? He spoke truth, but he continued to conceal his sin. A true confession from Adam would have sounded something like this, Lord God, have mercy on me, for I have done a most terrible thing. I willingly ate of the fruit that you told me not to eat. I have rebelled against you. And having felt the shame of it, I added to my sin by running from you as if I could hide from your presence. I even tried to cover the shame of my nakedness on my own. Have mercy on me, O God. Um, And renew a steadfast spirit within me. This would have been true repentance, right? For Adam to have stated all of this, I actually sinned, I did so willingly, and I even sinned further by trying to hide myself from you. Um, But instead, Adam continued to hide his actual transgression. I heard the sound of you in the garden, I was afraid, and because I was naked I hid myself. No mention of the fact that he actually ate of the forbidden fruit. No mention at all concerning that. And because God is merciful and kind, and because God's will was to bring about true repentance in Adam, he persisted with Adam and spoke to him ever more directly. He then said to Adam, Who told you that you were naked? And then, Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Brothers and sisters in Christ, aren't you grateful that God was persistent with you? to draw you to full repentance and faith. Aren't you grateful for that? Aren't you grateful for the Lord's chastisement, for His discipline, not pleasant in the moment, but for our good? Do you not rejoice at the fact that God would not let you off the hook when you offered up to Him false repentance and false faith? But instead, what did He do? Out of mercy and grace to you, He continued to apply His law to you with more and more precision until you were truly humbled and could not escape. God will not be mocked, friends. You may fool men. You may fool men by offering up half-hearted apologies, partial repentance, false faith. But you cannot fool God. And God, by His grace, is persistent with those whom He calls to Himself. He applies His law ever more firmly and precisely until sinners come to agree that they have violated God's law, that their sin is indeed heinous, and that they stand in need of a Savior. This is what God did with Adam. When Adam continued to conceal his sin, God spoke more firmly and more precisely. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And so Adam found himself at a crossroads, didn't he? Having been backed into a corner now by God's persistent questioning of him, he had a choice to make. He could either acknowledge his sin and own it, or he could persist in his rebellion. And we should notice that Adam did not choose the best path. Listen to his response to this second question from God. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. That was his response. And so notice that Adam did did finally confess his sin. He finally said it. I ate. I'll admit it. I ate. He admitted to God that he ate of the forbidden tree. But notice that he also shifted the blame. The woman, 
She gave me fruit of the tree and I ate it. Again, the statement was true. This is in fact what happened. Uh, uh, the, the woman was deceived first. She ate and gave the fruit to Adam who was with her and, and, and then he ate. It, it's a true statement. Uh, but instead of owning his sin purely, he tried to shift the attention to the guilt of another. And again, you and I prove that we are born in Adam when we do this very thing today. When we are under conviction, it is not uncommon for us to say, well, yes, I have sinned, but it is only because of his sin or her sin that I have done so badly. We are, we are very good at, at blame shifting, even to this present day. God presses his law upon us. God questions us. And, and we might be willing to admit that we have committed some wrong, but we love to deflect, don't we? Uh, yes, I have sinned, but... but but it is because so-and-so has done this or that. It is really their fault. Or, or look to them, God. Begin to question her. It is her fault. We prove that we are born in Adam when we do this very thing, thing today. Um, a parent might say to, to a child, Why are you speaking so harshly towards your sister? Are, are you speaking kindly to her? And what is the common reply that sometimes parents will hear? Uh, no, but... Do you notice how rude she has been to me? In other words, I would not have sinned if it wasn't for her sin first. Brother, why have you been sexually immoral? It is because she tempted me, and so I fell. Sister, why have you been unfaithful? It is because he was no longer meeting my needs and fulfilling my desires. Yes, I have done wrong, but really the attention should be on them. They have fallen. And it is because of their fall that now I have fallen. Friends, it would be far better in all of our relationships and in our dealing with God Himself to simply own our sin purely and to cease from the practice of shifting blame. To just be honest before God. Notice that Adam did not only blame Eve, he actually did a much more terrible thing when he put the blame on God, saying, the woman whom you gave to be with me she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Now, the Creator who had provided Adam with every good thing necessary for life and godliness is now being blamed by His creature. It really is an astonishing thing to, to see uh, that Adam would, would do this. He, uh, and yet, this is how far he had fallen. This is how far he had fallen. He had fallen so far in his rebellion that when being questioned by God and after being pressed into a corner, he answered God uh, with one finger towards Eve. It's her fault. And then his rebellion was, was such and it was so severe that he even had another finger pointed up to God and saying, in fact, it's your fault. This woman that you gave to, that, that you gave to be with me, she's the one who caused all of these problems for me. God is very patient with us, isn't He? For the world is, is absolutely filled with the sons and daughters of Adam who continually accuse God in this way. Instead of being grateful to God and astonished at His goodness, they complain against Him continuously and even blame Him for all of their sorrows when in fact the sorrow is a result of our own personal sin. The world is filled with, with such as these, and even within the church we find this, that when life grows difficult or when we're experiencing sorrows, we are prone to shift the blame to another and even to complain against God and, and to say, God, but if you would have done things differently, 
If you would have done things differently, then I wouldn't be in this predicament today. It is far better for us, friends, to own our sin before God and before one another. God was evidently not impressed with Adam's reasoning, for he dismissed his words and he looked to the woman, saying, what is this that you have done? He just doesn't even question Adam anymore. He just lets his, his, uh, his repentance, but his kind of sorry repentance, to stand. And he moves on to the woman and says, What is this that you have done? Uh, Eve's reply, I think, was more honest than Adam's. Do you notice that? Uh, she was more direct and to the point, saying only, The serpent deceived me and I ate. She admits her sin. The serpent deceived me. And I ate. Perhaps she is more direct and honest because she had just witnessed Adam fail so miserably in his attempt to hide his sin and to shift the blame. In other words, maybe I won't go that route because that didn't go over so well before God Almighty. Uh, But notice that Eve could not help herself. She too shifted the blame a bit, saying, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Again, a true statement, but the attention is being directed now towards the serpent. I think it is worth noticing that this is where the questioning stops in this narrative. Adam and Eve were questioned by God, but the serpent was not. The serpent was not questioned by God. The serpent will be cursed, but he will never be questioned. And the reason for this is that room for repentance was not left for the angels who fell, but only for man. In the realm of the angels, some kept their proper place whereas others rebelled. And here we have evidence of that rebellion as the serpent speaks to Eve. Indeed, it is the evil one himself who brings the temptation. But no mercy was shown to the fallen angels. No Savior would be provided for them. No promise of salvation for them would be held forth. Therefore, God did not question the serpent as He did Adam and Eve, for the purpose of the questioning was to bring about their repentance, and there was no repentance available or possible for the fallen angels. Brothers and sisters, by way of conclusion, I would like to apply this text to our lives. I think it is very applicable. I think it is important, first of all, to say, do not belittle the kindness and patience of God. Do not belittle the kindness and patience of God. The title of this sermon today is, The Day of Judgment Delayed. The day of judgment delayed. For that is what we see in this text. God did not immediately judge Adam and Eve fully and finally, but began to call them to repentance. This principle here that judgment day uh, was delayed uh, will become even more evident and obvious as we continue on in this narrative and see that though God curses the serpent and, and, and the woman and the man, He does not judge them fully and finally. In fact, He preaches the gospel to them. He he promises that a Savior will come. Uh, He has been merciful. He is patient with His rebellious creatures. He has delayed His judgment so as to leave uh, room for repentance. And this He is doing to this present day. The judgment day is still in our future. And that is a miraculous and marvelous thing to consider. It is still in our future. It could be today. It could have been the day Adam and Eve fell from their upright state, but the judgment day is still in our future. This is owed to the kindness and patience of our God. And what is the purpose of this delay? What is the reason for the the delay 
of, of the judgment day, it is to leave room for the accomplishment and the application of the salvation of God's elect. Christ has now accomplished salvation. This He did some 2,000 years ago. And the Spirit is now applying it through the proclamation of God's law and, God, and, and also the gospel. We should not belittle the kindness of God. This is why Peter said what he said in that passage that was read at the beginning of the sermon. The heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. But the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He is patient toward you, speaking to Christians, to the church. He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter is here replying to the, to the mocking and to the scoffing that he hears from the ungodly, saying, you, you Christians, you, 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 you people of faith, you continue to talk about the day of judgment, that it's, that it's near, it's coming. But look around you, they scoff, saying, everything goes on day after day as it has always been. You know, There has been talk of this judgment day from even from the days of our spiritual forefathers, but the sun rises and the sun sets, and the sun rises and the sun sets, and, and where is your God, this supposed judge? Peter is replying to that. He's responding, saying, with God, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a, of one day. And what is the reason for, for the delay that we see? It is, it is a testament to the patience of God, that He is leaving time, leaving room, so that none of His people would perish but that all should, in fact, reach repentance. Brothers and sisters, we should not belittle this, but we should give praise to God for the fact that He is so patient with sinful creatures such as ourselves. If you are not in Christ, the message that you need to hear is today is the day for you to repent, to turn from your sins and to look to Christ Jesus, who is the Lord, for the forgiveness of sins. God has shown mercy and grace, and today is the day for you to acknowledge your sin, to see it as heinous, to turn from it and to run to God through faith in the Savior that He has graciously provided, Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the message that you must hear if you are not yet in Christ, if you have not yet been broken by your sin. You need to be broken by it and you need to cling to Jesus. He is the Savior. And if you are in Christ, you need to hear a similar message that you have already responded by faith, praise be to God, but you need to cling to Christ all the more closely until He returns. Let us bow together for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, help us to understand the, the deep truths that are contained within this narrative in Genesis 3. When we read of Adam's sin, of his rebellion, may it strike us as a most terrible thing. May we also have the ability to look upon our own lives, and as we consider your law, and as we compare ourselves to it, may we be struck by the heinousness of our own sins. O oh Lord, truly, by nature... We are rebels and traitors. We are unfaithful people, godless people, who deserve only your judgment. May we come to this conclusion as we read the pages of Holy Scripture, Father, and may we do uh, the other thing that your, your word commands. May we uh, cry out to you and, and to acknowledge our sin. Uh, may we plead for mercy. May we run to you, for you have proven uh, that you are gracious and kind. And we thank you that you are, that you have so loved the world 
that you have provided the Son, that all who believe in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. God, I pray for those who do not yet know Christ, that they would indeed come to faith in Him. I pray for those who have already come to faith, that we would persevere to the end. God, sustain us for our good and your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray, and all of God's people say, Amen.